Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Today, uh, second sermon in the series on the parables. This is a simple parable. Unlike some of other Jesus' parables, uh, this one doesn't need a lot of interpretation. So I'm just going to read three verses and we can be done. Just kidding. Just kidding. Okay, so... Uh, this is what this is the parable of the two builders. Uh, most Christians know this one, and it's very powerful, but it's very uh, it's very simple, but yet it's still extremely powerful. And this is how I'm going to introduce what Jesus's point was in this um, in this sermon. When we drove, so we just got back uh, taking Lucas to college in Tennessee. So we drove, and there was one hilarious moment um, when we were driving. We drove two cars, Lucas drove his car, and some people rode with Lucas, and then we rented a car, um, and some people drove with, with me. Uh, the rental car was a, 2000, was a 2022 Toyota Prius, which um, has like three horsepower, if you've never driven a Prius. There is a power mode option, which means it has four horsepower. So we're in Western Colorado, uh, where there, it's rural, there's like nothing, and it's one, of those, it's, it's one of those things where the highway is so rural that the speed limit's 80 miles an hour because there's nothing there. So I'm driving this three horsepower Prius at, at 85 miles an hour in the middle of nowhere, or maybe it was 90 miles an hour. And I'm coming up on this red sports car that's in the slow lane, it's a two lane interstate. And as I get close to him, I see it's a guy driving a Corvette. It's a really nice Corvette. It's like they, it's like been perfectly taken care of. It's like the guy takes it home and like rubs it with a polishing cloth every night and everything. He's going 60 miles an hour. And so this Prius is just eating up the distance. He gets closer and closer and I get closer and I see it's this guy like in his late 50s with silver hair. He's having the time of his life tootling along in his Corvette at 60 miles an hour. It's probably like his dream car that he's won his whole life. And he's just there. He's really happy. And, I'm, and I just, I blow past him at 90 miles an hour in a Prius. And I thought for sure he'd be so outraged he'd like pass me. He just keeps right on going 60 miles an hour. Because he has a Corvette, but he doesn't actually want to drive it fast. He just got it because, maybe because he's always wanted it, but it's, it's meant to look pretty. He doesn't intend to actually drive fast with it. Because if there's anything that would make a guy in a Corvette be outraged, it's being passed at 90 miles an hour by a guy in a white Prius. I mean, really. But he doesn't do anything. So that's what, that, that's what I, th well, I think this is a good segue into it. The Corvette is eye candy. It's meant to be a toy. It, it's a show-off car. It's not really meant to be. The guy doesn't want to use it to drive fast. Jesus, in this parable, the parable of the two builders, we got, there's a guy who builds his house on sand. There's a guy who builds his house on rock. When the floods come, one house is washed away, the other's not. Really simple parable. Jesus is saying that our faith is not meant to be eye candy. It's not something that's meant to be pretty, and to talk about but never use. Uh, our faith is, faith is a serious thing. We're supposed to use it. We're supposed to employ it in our life. It's not supposed to sit on a shelf so we can talk about it and so it can be pretty and just sit there. The problem, and it's not a new thing, Jesus talks about this. The problem is that for too many people who claim Christ's name, us, 
not just them, us, for all of us. We're tempted to make our faith become external, to make it become eye candy, to have Christianity, but wittingly or unwittingly, make it so that it never really touches our hearts or renovates our lives, or we only let it renovate the most convenient parts of our life. We build our lives on other things while putting Jesus like on the dashboard as like a bobblehead. He's always there and we spend time with him every day because you know, he bobbles at us as we drive to work, but he really isn't, he doesn't really have our heart at all. We build our lives on other things. So this is not a new problem. It's a, it's, it's a human problem, right? That's why Jesus told the parable. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 28. Uh, but we're, we're going to look at some stuff from, skim through some stuff, and starting in Matthew 5, leading up to it. Because you always have, Jesus always tells a parable for a reason. So what happened before that made him tell the parable, right? So we're going to spend uh, our time in Matthew 7, verses 24 and 28. We're going to look at the parable. Then we're going to talk about the stuff he just mentioned that made him tell the parable, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And then we're going to talk about what does that mean for you? You're sitting here today. Uh, noon is coming. Uh, what does this have to do with you today as you go forth to do your Sunday afternoon and get up on Monday to do whatever it is you do on Monday? What's this have to do with you and with us? So let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Lord, please prepare our hearts to hear your word, to obey your will, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The parable. Real simple. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24. This is what he says. Therefore, so whenever someone says, uh, your translation probably has therefore, because it's the stuffy way to translate uh, the word in Greek. Whenever therefore is there, you should always look to find out why, what it's there for. Get it? Get it? Yeah. So something happened beforehand that made Jesus tell the parable. So he says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice or does them, is what the Greek actually says, does them, is like a, a wise man who built his house on the rock. Behold, the rock house, right? Built his house on the rock. The rains came, the streams rose. The winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall. Why? Because it had its foundation on the rock. So the threat in each one, there's, so there's two contrasts. There's the guy with his house on the rock. There's this guy who builds his house on something else. And the threat is always flooding. The rains fall, the waters rise, and a flash flood comes through, like the one on your screen, and cuts the foundation out from under the house, or... It doesn't. The stream, the flash flood, is the threat. But, verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice or does not do them, doesn't make a habit of doing them, is like a foolish man to build his house on sand. This is an Israeli settlement that was built on, on sand that they had that the Israeli government evacuated in 2005. Why? Because this happened. Oops. Is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down. The streams rose. The winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. 
because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Jesus spoke plainly, definitively. He would give you an answer. Uh, the teachers at the time didn't do that. They, they spoke by quoting other people. So if, if you read Jewish, Jewish literature like the Mishnah or, or other things like that, um, the way they taught was Rabbi Frankenstein said this, Rabbi Tyler said that, Rabbi Ralph said this, and Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Samuel said this. And you're left with, okay, what's the answer? So Jesus didn't teach like that. He didn't teach by telling you what Rabbi Tyler said. He just taught this is what God's word says. You've heard it said, blah, 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 but this is what it really means. He taught with, with authority. He didn't teach with a wishy-washiness of this one said that, that one said that, that one said that. He, he told you what it meant. So all, this parable is really simple to understand. What is your life built on? What is your life built on? If you're, and if you're a Christian, you already know what the answer is. So you already know you belong to the, you're with the guy who built his house on the rock because we build our lives on Jesus. Amen? So there, we're all done. We can go home now. Uh, Jesus, we know what the answer is, but the story is meant to get us to think, what do we really build our lives on? And Jesus said, therefore, the one who hears these words and does them, what are the words that Jesus just spoke that he's trying to emphasize with this parable? Jesus has just finished the Sermon on the Mount. And this parable wraps up the Sermon on the Mount. He's like, the ones who hear everything I just said in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you can hear them and you have a choice. You can do them or you can ignore them. One of the two, and that depends what foundation your house is built on. The Sermon on the Mount, some people have a lot of trouble with knowing what to do with it. The Sermon on the Mount doesn't tell you how to be saved. The Sermon on the Mount tells you if you love God, this is what your life should look like more and more as you grow as a Christian. The Sermon on the Mount, so this is important. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is a picture of the fruit of salvation that should be in your life. Maybe the fruit isn't so good right now, but it should be moving better and better as God changes you. So he just finished telling them all these things. Well, what did he say in the Sermon on the Mount? This is not going to be a sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. So if you're worried about that, then you can breathe easy. But there are three, you can break everything, you can list everything he said into three categories in the Sermon on the Mount. Three categories. If you're a Christian, there needs to be fruit. The Sermon on the Mount explains the inevitable fruit of your salvation. Three categories. He talks about things about right and wrong, moral things. He talks about if you love God, this is what it should look like. So allegiance to God. And he talks about loving one another. All the things in the Sermon on the Mount can be put into those three categories really easily. You know, so you can make categories for things and you have to try and make them fit. These just, they just click with, with no effort. Right and wrong, allegiance and love for God, brotherly love. They all fit in those three categories. So I'm going to run through a list of what he said. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to preach about what he said. I'm just going to put the list there so we can see why the parable was said. For right and wrong, the categories are pretty simple. Adultery and, and uh, lustful looking 
are not good. If you're a Christian, you should want to flee from those things. Maybe you're not so good at it, but your heart should be, I shouldn't be doing that thing. Um, cheap divorce. Divorce is permitted in certain circumstances. Jesus is talking about cheap divorce. Uh, oaths that are made rashly, right? That's, those are right and wrong things. Where it really gets down to brass tacks is in the other two categories. Uh, things about allegiance to God. He talks about be salt and light. You know salt's there because you taste it. Are we salt and light? Are you salt and light to the people in the bubble God has put you around? Or are you just like everyone else? Follow all the commands. Don't pick and choose, but actually do do all the things that try to do all the things that Jesus says. Have honest, quiet prayer with God. Not for show, not so people think you're, you're spiritual. You don't post a social media thing about how much you love God while not actually loving God, right? You, you spend real quality time with God yourself. Maybe we're not so good at that, but do we want to be better? It, what's our heart? He talks about fasting, not at an ostentatious, look at me, I'm so spiritual, but love for God produces, I want to, for example, I, I want to fast and, and commune with God. Do you love treasures here? Or do you love the treasures that are waiting for you in heaven? Which one? Of course, we know what the right answer is, but what, what is reality? What is it really? Do we want to seek? Do we want to seek his kingdom and his righteousness more than the things here, than temporary things? What do we really? What's our passion? If our if our best friend could say. Tyler, does Tyler, is Tyler focused on God or is he really focused on other things? What would they say? If you ran that test, what would the answer be? Um, asking God for help or trying to ask, seek, knock, and it'll be given to you. Do you ask God for help or you just do everything on your own? These are, these are quick things where Jesus, on the, all in the Sermon on the Mount where he's talking about what does it mean if you're a Christian to love God? Here are some examples. There's, you know, he could have gone on. I'm sure he did. I wish the YouTube video hadn't been taken down by Pontius Pilate and we could just watch it, but it was. So we have these examples. Then he talks about brotherly love. Um, holding a, gr a bitter grudge against someone and refusing to deal with it is on the same plane. It's on the same trajectory as murder. Do you... Do you want to retaliate against people who wrong you, or will you choose to love them instead? Now, that's really hard to do. Do you have love for your enemies, or do you hate your enemies? Do you give to the needy at all? And if you do, do you do it quietly? Olympia Union Gospel Mission. Uh, or, or do you make a big show of it so people think you're a spiritual, spiritual person? Do you forgive people? Or... Do you not forgive people? Do you hold grudges? Are you a bitter person? Are you hypocritically judgmental? That's the one where Jesus says, you know, you're talking about a speck in someone's eye when you have a beam in your own eye. Are you just this hypocritical, judgmental Pharisee? Is that you? So he runs through all of these things in two chapters. And each one of these could be a sermon in and of itself, but I'm not going to do that today. But the point is, that's the stuff that he just finished saying when he gives the parable. So you could, you could make a list of these things and you could grade them if you wanted to, if you wanted a snapshot of your own 
where you are and where you should go sort of thing. I don't want us to do a self-grade. You can do a self-grading thing if you want. I'm not going to pass anything out. But the parables are meant to make us think, do you care about anything he just said? Right? All the stuff that I just listed, do we care about any of them? Or do we shove a bunch of them in the closet and only focus on the easy ones? Right? It's like when your parents give you a bunch of chores to do, you do the easy ones first, right? And save the last ones because they're horrible. You just save them for last. Maybe you'll run out of time. You know, you won't be able to do them. Some husbands like to do that with chores around the house. Not me. Other people, right? So, you know, we can do the easy ones. Don't get cheap divorces. Got it! You know, but do we actually care about all of them? Do we actually care about all of them or not? That's how, why Jesus tells the parable. And after having said all of that, that's why it's such a, uh, a, a gut punch, like, ooh, that's not very nice. That's not very nice. So now we come to, what is this parable supposed to mean? What's it matter, right? What, what does the parable matter? The Sermon on the Mount isn't just for you as a person. It's for the community. It's plural. All the yous there are plural. You have heard it said. He's not saying... Tyler has heard it said. He says, you all have heard, that, heard it said this, but I tell you this. It, he's talking to us as a group. We're, a, we're saved, not just so we can be saved by ourselves. We're saved so we can be part of a family that has a mission. Those missions on, on the wall, the posters on the wall. And if we don't do our mission, what on earth are we doing here? So if Jesus has words that he's given us a, a path to follow... We should probably make sure we follow his path, or what else, what are we doing here then? What are we doing here? What are we doing? We could be like this guy, you know, had one job to do. You notice it says turn left, but the arrow's pointing right, you know, where things are kind of messed up. What, are we, what is this? One job, and you couldn't even put the arrow the right way, right? Um, if we claim to be Christians, but we don't actually do what Jesus said, you know, in that short list from the Sermon on the Mount, then in what sense are we even doing, are we even, in what sense are we not this guy, this poor, this poor, uh, what even, what even city department does that? I don't even know, streets and sanitation, I don't know, whatever. Poor, the poor guy who did this, how are we not him? How are we not him if we hear Jesus' words but we just choose to only do part of them that are easy? That's why the parable's there. So we feel convicted so we feel the force of what he's saying it's important that we do what he says the problem so this is the problem that jesus is taught is the reason why jesus told the parable there are two kingdoms in this in this in this world and there's two masters and that means there's two cultures going on side by side two kingdoms are being built by two masters in parallel at the same time in conflict over the same space and the same people. Satan has a kingdom that he's trying to build. Jesus has a kingdom that he is building. And they're constantly intersecting like a Venn diagram, intersecting, butting heads, colliding, because both kingdoms are being built in the same space and being fought over the same people. And Satan doesn't just act. When we think of Satan in the church, we think of persecution. But Satan also acts by seduction seduction getting us to not overtly deny jesus but just to put him on our dashboard as a bobblehead you know 
So he's there. We see him every day, don't we? But he's not, doesn't have our heart. He used to, but not anymore. That's the seduction that Satan does. That's the seduction that's dangerous. Where a real Christianity that, that's heroic, that cares about the gospel, and wants to, is consciously pushing against the, the other kingdom and the other culture that's trying to smother the church. Instead of pushing and pushing against it, we just let it fold over us like a warm blanket. And Jesus becomes the bobblehead on the dashboard. And Christianity becomes just a cultural thing. It's there, but it's hermetically sealed from every aspect of our life where it could really make a difference. In, if any of you have been to the South, it's a really different place. I've been to the South before, and we went there again just now um, to drop Lucas off. I wish I had a better picture. This encapsulates the culture in the rural South so well. There is, this is Smyrna Road. This is in, right outside Dayton, Tennessee, where we dropped him off for school. This is Smyrna Road, and it's not an accident that it's named after one of the churches from Revelation. And there's this sign here. It says area churches, and it lists six Baptist churches on the same road. That's how many churches there are. We have, hold on, Smyrna Baptist, Missionary Dale Baptist, Cedar Creek Baptist, something Baptist and something Chapel Baptist. But there's so many churches they don't even bother, they don't have their own sign. They're just like, they're all up here, right? And that's just one road and it's on Smyrna Road, right? Christianity is a cultural thing down there. We went to a small church, there's 500 people in the service. 500 people. It's crazy. Everyone's a Christian in the South. Some people are Christians, but are all of them really it's a cultural thing. It's so much, so much of it is cultural. Some of it is real, of course, but some of it is not. And in culture Christianity, which is what Satan wants, Satan doesn't want us to do what Jesus says, to build our house on the rock. He wants us to confess Jesus, but to really put him off on a shelf where he can be looked at and spoken about, but he doesn't really do anything. In culture Christianity, Christian values are always more important than the actual gospel because it's not real. It's not real. Like the Corvette I passed at 90 miles an hour in the western Colorado. It's meant to be put on a shelf. It's meant to be seen. It's meant to be admired. It's meant to be spoken about, but it's never meant to actually, it's never meant to actually be used. See, there's Jesus now. <laughs> and in the same way in our, in our life, Jesus can become a figurehead to be seen and spoken about in worship, but never loved, because something else has primal place. Jesus becomes a bobblehead or a coffee table book. That's another one of my references that's probably getting dated. Do people have coffee table books anymore? Yes, okay. You know, there's coffee table books, these huge, monstrous, big, thick books with pictures. They just sit on a coffee table and look pretty, and you, like, leaf through them when you're bored or something. And they just sit there and gather dust. And then when you die, your kids give it to goodwill, right? The coffee table book. It's there. It's pretty. It's undeniably well done. It's got cool pictures. It's never really read. It just sort of, it's just sort of there, right? Jesus becomes a coffee table book. And that means, if we don't do what Jesus said, 
coffee table Christianity is going to get run over by a semi-truck because it's not real. The seduction that Satan wants us to, to fall for is we're busy. Uh, we have things that are, yes, Jesus is important, but these are immediate, and we need to take care of these things, these treasures below. Um, the bobblehead Jesus is good enough. The Corvette Jesus at 60 miles an hour is good enough. The, it's all good enough. It's not an accident that the Sermon on the Mount, right before our parable, ends with three warnings that I didn't put on the list. The Sermon on the Mount ends with three things, and they're all very serious warnings. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know what these are on the screen. The narrow gate? This is what Jesus said. After saying all of these things about what true belief looks like, he said in Matthew 7, 13, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now that speaks for itself, but why does he issue this warning and then our parable? Because he's trying to make us think, you all think that you're all in and everything's good, but we're not all in. Some of us are lying to ourselves. And then the next one, the true and false prophets and what real fruit looks like. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. What's our fruit? Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes? No. Or figs from thistles? No. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. What is the fruit of your life? What's the fruit of my life? What's the fruit of our lives? It's a warning to make us think. And then this one, which is extremely troubling in Matthew 7, 21. Again, it speaks for itself. There's no riddle here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father, who's in heaven, who does the thing, does the will of the Father. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. What's that mean? There are people who claim to be Christians who Jesus doesn't even know. It's meant to make us think, do I want to do what Jesus said? If not, the one who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then we get to our parable, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice the house built on rock. The one who hears the words and doesn't do them, house built on sand, with two completely different futures for each one. The Sermon on the Mount starts by identifying four groups of people. There's more than four, but I'm just going to focus on these four. 
Why do you think God starts, the, why do you think Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount by talking about these four groups? Blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Every single one of these people are people who are not happy here. Not because they're miserable people, but because they know there's a better tomorrow coming. They're looking forward to something better. They're not content here. The people who are poor in spirit, they're crushed. They're depressed. They're oppressed. They're, they're weighed down by a whole bunch of stuff. It doesn't matter what it is. They're, they feel crushed. Blessed are those who mourn because they know this world isn't a good place. They don't want to be here forever. They're fine to be here now, but they're really looking for something better. They're mourning because of loss of loved ones, because of circumstances, because of being crushed down by life. And they're looking for something better. Blessed are the meek, people who are not braggarts, who aren't angry, violent people, who want to lead quiet and peaceable lives. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because this world ain't righteous and they're looking for the better tomorrow. Why do you think the Sermon on the Mount starts with these people? Why does he start with these people? Because these folks, if he's going to list all those things I mentioned, these folks are the people for whom Jesus' call is the most attractive. Because they're the ones who are the most uncomfortable here in this world with all the messed up stuff that's going on. Satan's seduction has less to work with. They're less comfortable here. His seduction is less effective. These people, people who are crushed in spirit, the people who are mourning, the people who want to lead quiet, peaceable lives while they wait for Jesus, the people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, these are the people who are looking forward to the better tomorrow because their houses are built on a real foundation, not on the things of this world. Jesus said that your life doesn't consist in the abundance of your possessions. But in the middle of the Sermon on, on the Mount, he said this. He said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. What does that mean? As you think about the parable, you can build your house on something, what's it going to be? What does this command mean? It means, as you think about this parable, as you think about your life right now, and you think, it's almost noon, we're almost done, I want you to think about this. It means, what Jesus is saying here is that he wants us to take everything else in this world, all our values, all our hopes, all our efforts, all of our dreams, and he wants you not to destroy them, but to throw them into the shade, under the shade, of Jesus and his kingdom. More and more, as we grow closer and closer to look more and more like Christ. That means everything else pales in comparison to his kingdom and his righteousness. Like, for real, not just for fake. Like, for real. We, we say these things, but... That's what he wants us to do. Is this true in your life? No one does this perfectly. But is your heart God, his kingdom, and his righteousness, and everything else falls in line behind it? 
or is it flipped the other way? That's why Jesus tells the parable. In this parable, Jesus takes a sledgehammer, not a little you know, seven-ounce carpenter's hammer, a sledgehammer to coffee table Christianity, to the bobblehead Jesus savior thing on your dashboard, or to a casual Christianity that's meant to look pretty on a shelf but not actually meant to touch anything in our lives. In this parable, Jesus, in a way that's much more powerful than if he just said the words, says to each one of us, you can say, you can say, you know, whatever you like, but everyone builds their life on something. Not everyone who says they love me actually does love me. They're lying to themselves. So, what he wants us to ask ourselves when the parable's over, what will happen to your house when the rains come and the waters rise? What is your life built on? What is your life built on? That's what he wants us to think about by means of this simple story. What's your life built on? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your message. Thank you for the, the, the challenge that Jesus gives us in these parables to make us think about our life, about our allegiance, about our relationship with you, whether it exists at all, whether we've allowed it to go cold and stale, or whatever the case might be. Please work on us through your Holy Spirit and help us to grow closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.